The title of this episode is Crabs in a Bucket because my guest today beautifully illustrated this philosophy when she shared her story with me during our interview, and I absolutely loved it. The whole visual of crabs in a bucket is just still sticking with me even after our interview is over. Debbie Adams is a bit of a renaissance woman and a dark horse. As you'll hear when she shares her story, there were just so many times in Debbie's life when the things that happened to her could have totally taken her out of the game permanently. But Debbie doesn't quit. She understands the power of education and she's worked hard for and earned her right to be at the table with a passion to leave the world in a lot better place than how she found it for future generations. Debbie likes to bring issues to the table that remove barriers for others to achieve their dreams. And I love that about her. She's a business coach, money mentor, author, and speaker. She's also my friend and client. And I gotta say, I've absolutely loved getting to know Debbie's story as it has greatly inspired me. And I know it will inspire you. So let's get into it like crabs in a bucket right now on the Inside Story Podcast. Hi, I'm April Adams Pertwee. I'm your host of the Inside Story Podcast. I've been telling people stories my entire adult life as a broadcast journalist, video producer, and digital storyteller. These days, you can find me at Light Beamers, where I'm building a community of women who are ready to step into their brave by sharing their story with the world. On the Inside Story podcast, I'm bringing you some of the best stories I'm discovering from both the women inside of my community, as well as from around the streets of the internet. Plus, I'm digging deep to share some of my own stories with you along the way. My hope is that these stories will help encourage you to examine your own story so that you can share it with other people. I have a motto at Light Beamers. When we share our stories, we shine a light. So with that in mind, let's get down to business today and share the light found in this episode. Hello, 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 Light Beamers and Inside Story podcast listeners. I'm so happy you're with us today. Us being myself and my dear friend and client, Debbie Adams, who's joining me on the podcast today. She is a brilliant entrepreneur, has an amazing background and story, which of course we're going to dig into. Um, she's becoming quite the storyteller herself. She's an author and a speaker and just a brilliant mind in terms of business and um, connecting people and not, not forgetting where you came from. There's just so many elements of her story that I love and adore. And I invited Debbie on the podcast today because I knew that there were just so many of these topics that we could just really have so much fun um, exploring together. So Debbie, welcome to the show. I'm so happy that you're here on the Inside Story. Oh, me too. Glad to be here. And you are, tell everybody where you're dialing in from. You're up in Nova Scotia. I am in Nova Scotia, Canada, in Halifax, actually. Beautiful Halifax. Yeah, a part of the world that I have never been to. So I hope to get to one day, and now I have a really good excuse to come. I'll get to come see you. Um, I've, never, I've never been up in that area. So tell me a little bit about... Um, it's summertime here in Texas. It, we are literally experiencing a 100 plus heat wave every day this week. I don't know what the temperature is today. I haven't even gone outside, um, but it's been over 103, 105 every day this week and will continue. Please tell me in Nova Scotia and Halifax, you're just having the most glorious day and the weather is perfect. The weather is not really perfect. We don't have really, really warm weather in June. It's mostly like a July and August, September okay. is kind of cool. But um, our average probably around 85. Oh, that's and, that would be yeah. divine right now. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh. We, do, we do get like heat waves for short stints, but no, we're not really warm. Okay, so... Answer this question for me, since I've never been to Halifax or any of that section of the world, what is your favorite part about living there? Oh, it's um, beaches. Our beaches mm -hmm. are remarkable. We have a lot of shoreline and all of our beaches are accessible in terms of, um, 
you know, sandy beaches we can go swim in. And yeah. Mm, I love it. I love it. All right. Well, I want to dive into all the juicy stuff mm-hmm. about your story. Um, and of course, we'll talk about some of the amazing work that we've been able to do together this past year as um, we've been working together. You've been building out a signature talk and a keynote speech. Um, I know you've really enjoyed this process of digging into your story and finding all the elements of, of your story that are really quite you know, fun and, and usable, and you've been putting them out there um, with your audience, and I know you've had a lot of fun doing that. As I've gotten to know you and as we've done that work together, I've come to know that you actually have a pretty extraordinary story. Um, you've been through a lot in your life that I think, um, even in our last talk together, I said to you, you know, there are some things that, that even if, if one person had dealt with one of the things that you've been through, that would have been significant, but you've had so many different perceivable, I guess, setbacks or challenges in your life. And yet you keep forging forward you you come out on the other side smelling better and sweeter i mean it's it's been really really fun to get to know your story and understand the resilient nature that you have about yourself so i'd love to just kind of walk through the highlights of your story with with our audience a little bit starting with um kind of giving a background about the area that you come from in you know when you were growing up um, which led you to to end up joining the Canadian Army and becoming a mechanic of all mm-hmm. things as a woman mechanic in the Canadian Army back when you were not even not even twenty years old yet you were like even before I think you were still in high school when that happened right I was seventeen seventeen just a and baby. what made you join the Canadian Army as a mechanic. <laughs> well- <laughs> I come from Newfoundland, which is the next pro- the farthest, the province that's farthest east in Canada. It's an island, and uh, it's another beautiful place in Canada, I will add. Um, a small rural community where our dads worked, our moms stayed home, and uh, people were, were really the working poor, uh, you know, just kind of barely making ends meet, but working really, really hard to do that. And our moms were the buffer against what can often be a cruel world, right? So um, we had the misfortune in my family of uh, my mother was in a car accident when she was 34 years old. At the time, I was 12. And uh, that's when we lost our buffer and everything Mm -hmm. in our lives changed. Now, we didn't have that same kind of a stable home where we had a mom that was, you know, forcing us to do all of the things that, uh, you know, kids want to play and she she could she was not able to parent in the same way so we we're kind of all on our own so i always like to say that i've been on my own since i was 12 and um you know everything kind of turned upside down i would you know i don't like to throw anyone under the bus everybody was doing the best that they could uh-huh. but sometimes the best is not good enough yeah and so yeah it ended up being that kind of an unstable environment for young for young children to be in no real protector in that sense um early on i latched on to this notion of joining the military i joined the cadets i was very studious and i knew that i needed to finish high school in order to get in and i just put my nose into a book and and that was it i know now you know many many decades later that i was running from uh this this lack of structure, a very unstructured environment into a very structured environment that became my family. Yeah. I know when we've talked, you've, you've told me how much being a part of the army meant to you that you really were like the best person to join the army. Cause you, you, you latched onto it and you found that, that structured environment you were craving. You found people who looked out for you and taught you and led you. And you quickly were rising yourself through the ranks and, you know, doing a really good job and you were so well poised to take on other leadership roles. And, but then something happened, um, you know, later on in in your career um, of being in the army in which allowed you or forced you to no longer be in the army, which was what? (laughs) 
which was really trauma number two in my life. You know, I did latch onto the military a little tightly. People who understand psychology and attachment uh, will know that children who come from these kinds of environments will often find another place and be a little bit, you know, just hold on a little too tight. Um, it wouldn't have been bad had I been able to serve forever, but unfortunately, uh, I developed. I didn't know I had developed. I found out very suddenly that I was legally blind. <laughs> this is like I can even laugh about it when I talk about it. You know, I was, I was rocking and rolling and doing extremely well. Told I was going to be promoted, moving to Germany with the, you know, with this regiment, and part of that process was to get a medical. And in that medical, which I drove to in my new car, you know, having just qualified on the range a week before. Um, I found out that I had a, a disease called retinitis pigmentosa that takes away your peripheral vision. And when um, there's two ways to be blind, just for the listeners. So you can be blind because you lose some of your visual acuity and you can't pick out things. Um, I'm not blind in that way. I have 20-20 vision in what I can see. But the other way to be legally blind is if you lose, um, if you get below 20 degrees of vision. So most humans can see almost 200 degrees, like eyes in the back of their head mm-hmm. because the eyeball is curved. Well, I had this condition that I didn't know I had. Imagine this. And that day when I went to the doctor, I was at the 20 degree mark. That's the mark where they, where you're legally blind, where they take away your driver's license. And unfortunately, they take away your military career because you can no longer fire a weapon. Mm, devastating. I mean, and especially when you didn't even know, because you could see, you just didn't realize you didn't have peripheral vision. I did not. And, you know, where uh, our vision is complex. I mean, we scan most of the times, even now, sometimes I'm a little bit in denial by what mm-hmm. I can see, but we construct a picture, you know, by looking around and, and we think we can see all that, but really we can't, you know, it's a brain thing. But at the time, I mean, it was quite it was quite traumatic. They took away my driver's license first, and I adapted. So I went back to work. I wasn't having any symptoms. You know, I wasn't, my work wasn't suffering or anything. And um, a lot of time went by, you know, f- probably five or six weeks, and they called me in and said, they had a note from the doctor, and not only did you lose your driver's license, which was okay, uh, because I was taken on a more administrative role by this time. But they said, you can't fire a weapon, and, and we have to check and see if you can stay in the military. But that was just not anything I anticipated. I was determined to serve till compulsory retirement. At that time, I was age 55. You know, I'm only about 10 years in when this happens. Yeah. So it was, it was shocking. I mean, everything stopped. I was no longer on leadership track. I was no longer going to Europe. You know, I was no, I, it was awful. It took a year for them to release me because we did try and appeal a few of those decisions. And, you know, my mental health was impacted in that year because I was taken out of that uh, leadership stream. It was awful. Well, and so that's like, a. I think that's a story that a lot of people can relate to, even if they didn't serve specifically in the military, right? Like it's, it's job loss. And it's also with the loss of your vision came this label or title, right? Like this thing that you had to now carry around with you, which was this label of disability or disabled. And I, again, another thing that many people are out there soldiering on with and have their own disabilities that they're navigating. But your story just starts to kind of start piling up, right? You know, coming from an underserved, underprivileged background, getting into the military, losing your job, simultaneously discovering that you are a disabled person and you didn't even know you were, and having to navigate that loss of some independence and freedom by no longer being able to drive, um, you know, drive that brand new car you had just bought and were enjoying. And that wasn't it though. Like, this is what I mean by your story. As I've worked with you, I'm like, oh my gosh, they just, the hits keep coming. And so after that happened and you left the military, now you don't have a job and you are now disabled. Um, and you're married at the time and you have your daughter, was your daughter born at that point? You had a baby. Did you have your, were you married yet? You weren't married yet. No, 
that came later. But um, I think the most shocking piece about uh, leaving the military, I joined the military when I was 17. I had never, I, you know, I lived with my family. I joined the military and they became my uh-huh. extended family. And we, they don't train us for corporate jobs, right? We're always being trained for service to our country. And, and that's, that level of commitment is, is huge in most, most of us. And so when they release you like that, um, things have changed, but they released me into poverty. So, you know, I was making less than, less than 500 American at the time. And, um, I now I know I was now disabled, which I had never had any transition into, and uh, I had no car, and my independence was gone. I had no driver's license, so you know I left the military in much worse condition than when I joined. <laughs> Without the support, helped me to transition, and I came from a, a, a family background. We were doing the best I could, but as children, we were supporting our parents. I mean, those roles reversed when we lost my mother. I mean. We didn't lose my mother. I mean, she was still there. But when we, we didn't have the, my mother broke her neck and had traumatic, traumatic brain injury. She was in a coma for many months. I mean, that was devastating. And now to go back home, it wasn't like I was going to go back home to people who could care for me. Right. I was going back home to people that needed to be cared for. So it wow. was like a, you know, a true um, I always, it was totally, totally. And, uh, you know, I had hit the ground running and, and do what needed to be done. And I didn't know at the time till t- a decade later that I was actually experiencing some uh, post-traumatic stress, mm-hmm. uh, not a syndrome, but definitely the mental health challenges were there. But I did what I always did. And that was, you know, you know, full speed ahead. And next thing you know, I'm married. I have a, a young child. And I I was married for ten years, and yeah. uh, and that all fell apart. So, you know, nowhere in any of that did I get any help. Mm-hmm. I just kept going. You just kept forging on, which is I think what a lot of women do, right? That's a very much a. I hear this all the time, and I have been I've done this, you know, or it's like up, oh, just keep going, just plow forward, like do do do, you know, soldier on you know, just, you, you can't wallow. Right. And there's times when I think that that's good. (laughs) And there's times when that's absolutely what is not needed. And like for you yourself saying, you just didn't get the help. You didn't get cert, you know, support. Nobody was talking to you probably about how did you feel? Um, it was just like, how are you going to make ends meet? How can you put food on the table? And, what are you going to do for work? You know, coming from that background where work was probably everything, you know, making a living was everything and not knowing how you were, you were going to do that. So, um, jump ahead a little bit because what, what unfolded, you know, obviously there were some challenges with getting work when you're now disabled and that's a challenge by itself to go out and find additional work when you can't drive to the location and you were struggling even, you know, privately, mentally with everything that had been going on. Um, what did you, what unfolded for you next? Like, how did you soldier on in your way? Yeah. Uh, so the marriage failed, you know, mm-hmm. that's the false notes, the marriage failed. And now I have a child who's eight mm-hmm. and I'm living on a disability pension, $16,000. It's not a lot of money. And, um, I, um, I I always translate or, or um, the, the Canadian money sixteen thousand is like eleven thousand American. <laughs> just saying, yeah. like just to put it in yeah. the context, it was awful. But the marriage wasn't working, and I have I've always had this powerful sense of who I was as a person. And even though there were all kinds of reasons why I should stay in this marriage, um, my, I didn't drive. My daughter was involved in a lot of activities. Um, I didn't have any income, you know, there are all kinds of reasons to stay, but there was this piece of myself that was really getting discounted if I did. And so I made the decision to take my daughter out of the marriage and at the same time enroll in university. So that year I separated from my husband the same month that I started university. And that was 
you know, 20 years ago, 20 years ago, and it was absolutely life altering. Uh, it wasn't the beginning of, it wasn't the end of struggle. I mean, lots, lots happened after that, but uh, a new way of doing things opened up. Was it because that education, like you had never been educated by that traditional sense through university? I mean, the army obviously educated you in really important, powerful ways, but is it that this was your first time being exposed to true education and learning? Yeah, without a doubt. And really, um, uh, I finished high school, but, you know, just kind of scraped through kind of thing. Um, and that was quite an accomplishment. It was a time when a lot of people would quit high school. Then I went into the military. I'm a journey mechanic, lots of leadership training, you know, that kind of stuff, but not, you know, not in the books kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But when I get at university, my professor starts to tell me that I'm quite intelligent. Nowhere. Now I'm 40 at this time. Nowhere in my life had anybody told me. <laughs> so that is my first clue. Now, sometimes when I talk about my military experience, because it really was the best time of my life, um, I kind of have to explain a little that we're ta- it's, it's really a subculture, right? So we're taken out of normal, uh, you know, society and really inculcated with this notion of us being a unit and whatnot. But what we also miss out on is the socialization that women would have between age mm-hmm. 17 and you know, I was almost 30. So they, while my um, friends back home, which is where I went, were dating and having babies and doing all of the stuff that makes us, you know, the women we become, uh, I wasn't doing that. I was, I was like, training, <laughs> training for the war, right? The, the, that wasn't here yet. And uh, and jumping out of planes and riding my dirt bike, like doing all kinds of wild and crazy things. So I really left with a, uh, not only a gap in skills about how I could become employed in the outside world, but a gap in social skills. And I would imagine you that know? led to a gap too, and how you related to other women. Well, 100%, because I really related well to men. And sure. that major socialization took place, you know, at that very key time. I worked with all men. I got along really good in that. And like when, you know, when people talk about making it in a man's world, I find that one easier. Yeah. So, because so you've done was it. that. I've done it. I know it. I, I know how to communicate. I, I communicate that way myself. So I end up at university and they start to tell me I'm smart and, and, you know, and it's showing up. But what do you do with that, right? It's not about being smart. It's about what kind of a life can you create mm-hmm. with that intelligence? And I'm poor. So let's not forget, I'm not at a university living high on the hog. I'm busing to school every day. It's a three-hour commute. I have an eight-year-old daughter who's gone into daycare first time in her life. And mama's at school all day for the next four years, not 10 minutes. And you so, were doing all of that while still on your disability pension. So this is how you're just scraping by, getting into school with the intention of getting an education to make a better life, to find the job and have it all be like, you know, tied up in a nice bow at the end. Um, and then there's like so much there. Um, it's lots of moving parts to your story, even to, during this time of being at the university. Um, but eventually you, I mean, now where you are today is you are an entrepreneur, you have your own business. How did you get from um, this place of coming from this underserved, uneducated background, military background that got discharged to then also being a disabled person to not being educated until you got into your forties and you go back to school and you get your degree when you and what, what, let everybody know what your degree was in and what, what did you think you were going to do when you got out of school <laughs> and then what actually transpired? Yeah, so my degree is I have a Bachelor of Arts in um, a major in political science, a minor in psychology, and I have uh, part of a master's in adult education, and I'm doing an MBA right now, so I'm a bit of an addict now. Uh, <laughs> when I went to school, I thought I would be a teacher. I had been volunteering in my daughter's school, uh, helping kids that never learned to read by grade five. They call it reading recovery. And I was having a lot of success, so much so that they paid me for a few hours 
Um, I think it's because of my military background of young boys responded really well to that, you know. Mm -hmm. So when I went to university, I thought, well, I can navigate in the classroom with my vision because they accommodated me, of course. Uh, maybe I could become a teacher. But then when I got at university, I, I saw that you could do so much. You know, there are so many things that people can do. I was, you know, just fascinated. So I think what I thought I would do was maybe work for government where you can get accommodation as, as a blind person. Um, either way, I worked hard. I got a degree. I graduated with distinction, top marks in my year. It was, I was an amazing student. And, um, but my self-image had started to change at the same time. You know, there's lots of stuff going on consciously and subconsciously all at the same time. Nowhere along the way could I really buy into the, I'm a disabled woman on a disability pension. Like, that is just somebody else. I am not that. I am, you know, a, a very proud woman and um, independent and determined. And I'm going to turn over every stone. Along the way, people had said, you know, Debbie, like, you're getting a little old now. I'm 40 now. And uh, they're saying, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world. Like, this is all you can do because it's a lot of effort. Anyway, um, yeah, I applied for 3,000 jobs and nobody would hire me. And what I now had against me was not only was I older, but I was uh, ageism was starting to kick mm -hmm. in. Nobody wanted to hire. A four, by the time I graduated, I was 45. And uh, nobody wanted to hire somebody that old, regardless of your skills. I mean, I hired a consultant to redo my resume and, and pick out all of those competencies that would work in the workplace. But now with the benefit of like, that's, that was quite some time ago, um, 15 years since I graduated, I see now that I really didn't know how to market myself. I had a lot of skills that somebody, you know, people, I get job offers all the time now. <laughs> I have yeah. the same challenges, you know. Yeah, nothing's but changed in terms know. of what you, yeah, the challenges that you yeah. have. Uh, but I can market my, uh, you know, I can shine the spotlight on, on things that employers would want. So I didn't know how to do that. And I was really getting irritated and, and things had gotten really gnarly at home. I mean, by the time uh, uh, I finished, my daughter's 16, by the time we really had to get out of our house. I mean, we had a foreclosure notice on our house in the morning and we had a sale in the afternoon, which lifted the foreclosure notice which made it really good for me to go bankrupt the following year because then the house wasn't in the bankruptcy anyway. All of that, uh, the legalities around the bankruptcy, it was good that uh, I didn't go bankrupt with a house. But um, this is the way we were. And I started, somebody said, you know, why don't you start a business? Well, um, what had happened was there was a course being run by the government for disabled people who might want to start a business. And I just didn't see myself as those people. <laughs> you know, I wasn't those people. But I was also tired and starving to death, you know, and not able to live in my house anymore. I needed to, like, get rid of a little bit of the pride and sit down and do this. So um, I was listening to every word that the uh, consultant that they had hired to do this. I was like hanging on every word and I wasn't there to just, you know, uh, get the free donuts every day. At the end of it, I had a meeting with them and I know I've mentioned this to you before, but um, we, we all get an hour with him and he said, you know, Debbie, tell you the truth. <laughs> if I knew what you knew, I'd be a millionaire and you're going bankrupt. And I was slightly pissed off by this because he was right, but I wasn't very good at asking for help. And I thought that was nasty. But I walked away for a minute and I did what I never did because I'd never asked for help. I went back and said, what do you see? <laughs> like, what is it that you would sell? And I was a little saltier than that because I do swear like a trooper on occasion. <laughs> When I'm well, you, come on, you, you get it honest, right? From the military background. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, he started to tell me about this, the knowledge industry, and you know, people pay for, for you to tell them what you know how to do. And I just needed to suss out what it was I was, I knew how to do. And it started small and, uh, and uh, it's been amazing. 
Amazing. I will say that I have a tremendous faith and I don't think anything that I've gone through, although it may shock people. And I know we've talked about this. It's, um, it was necessary. You know, I don't have, it was all necessary. I developed a tremendous amount of empathy for people. Uh, I'm in this amazing place now where I can open doors for other people. I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'm just so excited about my life. Every piece of it. I'm grateful for every piece of it. Well, I think that's like, that's why I wanted to give you time to like tell all these pieces of your story because now what you do, you run a company called People Cam uh, Training and Development. You're, do, you're a business coach. You help other other people and other businesses. And one of your big passions that I've come to know and learn about you is going back and helping those who um, are just like you were, you know, the uneducated, the underserved, the people who have that knowledge gap. And tell them what you know. Like you said, the knowledge base, now that you have it, you can go share it with other people. You have a, a real real heart for service that way. And, mm-hmm. you know, you now run a very successful business and you are, you've really kind of put a lot of that trauma and tragedy. You've been able to turn it around in your favor, which has been so amazing. I mean, just again, to recap, coming from an underserved, uneducated family uh, background, you know, joining the military as a woman um, in the Canadian army as a mechanic, very unusual and, you know, a whole dynamic there, but then and falling in love with it. But then also at the same time, you're finding out that you're legally blind and losing your ability to drive and some of that independence and now being disabled, also losing your job, a job that you loved. And then having to go on disability, take care of a young daughter, um, go through divorce. So we've got a divorce thrown in there. And then as you told the story of going back to university at the ripe old age of 40 to get a degree as a woman, right? Then also ultimately um, having to file bankruptcy because just you could not hold it all together when you're making $16,000 a year. You just can't. And eventually all the cards, they come falling down. And yours came falling down. And in that moment, I love the story of that guy telling you, you know, if I knew what you knew, I'd be a millionaire, but you're the one going bankrupt. And that pivotal moment of like, what do you mean? Tell me, what what do you see in me? Please tell me. And then, you know, seeing what was in front of you as an opportunity and you harnessing it, grabbing it, that can-do attitude came into play and a good time for you at that point. And you went on to build a super successful business and you now help other people in ways that you needed help back then. Like you said, you didn't have support. You weren't getting um, people talking to you about how to start your own business or anything like that back in those days. It took a long time before you got there, 45 years old, before like the door really opened for you. And that's a long time. If like a lot of listeners out there just could even imagine for a second, getting all the way to 45 years old before really, you know, things could really start to flourish in a positive way. That's a long time. It is a long time. And really, I was almost 50, you know, those first five years, I I was really still developing skills things needed to be done like i was heading into bankruptcy um no at no time was i ever running away from responsibility so everything was a soft landing in terms of uh-huh. we knew it had to happen you know i was coached by the bank manager and how to make this happen like when time make decisions in a timely manner but you know when all of that bit off my back um amazing things happened I mean, I no longer had to worry about all of that. And it was around the same time but that, that my daughter was finishing high school and then going off to do her own thing. And I had raised her to be a, a pretty independent child. Like I, I thought my responsibility was to raise a good adult. And I think I, you know, I've done that. She's 27 now. But um, it really freed up time for me. And when I would sit and have these conversations, like with the bank manager, you got to remember, he saw the back end of my life Mm -hmm. and um and my when I would tell them about my dreams they weren't small Mm -hmm. there were no resources I mean it's full-on law of attraction 
It was like I had these great big dreams with no idea how I could ever get there. But I knew what I was capable of. Once, and, and I've always had to have that person show up and kind of hold that mirror up and show me what I was capable of. So that was it. Once that guy gave me permission to see myself differently, to change my self-image in another positive way, and to bring all of the strengths that I already had, that was it. I was going to become a consultant, and I knew, having spent five years learning, that I could handle a learning curve. And I wasn't just a mechanic. I was somebody who understood um, an automobile like an engineer would. So I didn't know that was because I had a great brain. I just thought I was interested. But I have a great brain. Just saying. Mm -hmm. And so I um, started out, uh, he had said to me, take what you know how to do well. So what I knew how to do well was uh, be a leader in a male-dominated environment and get um, get that best seat at the table, get everybody listening to me and listen to what I said they should be doing and do it. And that was... Um, somebody helped me to, you know, to suss out that one. So I put together a little program uh, for the oil and gas industry in Eastern Canada. They had been drilling a lot of uh, oil wells and they uh, decided to employ 3% women in the oil and gas industry across the board at every level of organization. I said, this is a place for me. So I got to sit at the table with procurement people from big companies, Warley Parsons, you know, international companies that were, drilling for oil but the problem was i didn't know how to sell so i would be all interested in what the women would be able to do but not how what i was selling was impacting their bottom line so i'd get meetings i know how to get in the room with the people and they love talking to me but i just couldn't sell i just couldn't sell so you know after a couple of years i had to take a job and i took a job in taxes and it was the best thing that ever happened to me for a number of reasons the owner of the business was disabled, and I started to think, you know, like we do, oh, if he can do it, I can do it, you know? And I'm getting a look at this. I'm, I'm the manager in this little satellite office. It's seasonal, and I'm getting a look at the back end. I'm recording the revenues every day, and you can tell, you know, I'm getting pissed off because I know what I'm getting paid, and uh -huh. I see what's coming in the door, and I think to myself, all I do is re send those reports over. Well, <laughs> that was it. All of the business that came into that satellite office for a couple of years was as a result of what I knew how to do, and that was build powerful network. That's a skill that I've had since I was a kid. That's not new. So I, I just want to, if I might back up a little bit and talk about my background in terms of crabs in a bucket. So crabs mm -hmm. in a bucket is a, a mentality that says, if I can't have it, you're not going to get it. And how it shows up in a community is like, if somebody starts something in a community, you know, the rest of the people will drive to the next community to get their needs met instead of supporting the new startup. Uh -huh. That's, you know, that takes place often. In my study of adult learning, uh, because I did go on to study adult learners, um, I've learned that there's, there is a pedagogy or a way of teaching oppressed people that empowers them. And I have been taught in that way, and I teach in that way. and it's it tackles the notion of crabs in a bucket by wrapping the supports around them that they need and what they need. And what I needed was a powerful network who could give me a hand out of the bucket, right? I needed the ability to communicate what I needed once I could determine what my needs were. And then I needed the mindset to be able to dream a big dream when the resources are not there to do it. And so what I've done is really uh, picked my life apart and taken out all of what has, has enabled me to, be, to get here. And now I, I go back and I say, I'm going to be the crab that got out. And most crabs run off. They run mm -hmm. off. They, they become politicians. They're the only doctor in the community. From my background, you know, we've had people who became doctors, never saw them again. They didn't come back and say, let's, let's teach these people how to ask for help. Let's show you how to dream yeah. a big dream. So I decided that, I don't think I decided. I think it was decided for me. You know, business is all about profit. The, the, the thing that distinguishes uh, 
business from a, another enterprise like a nonprofit is is profitability, mm-hmm. and and profitability has to be a value proposition in every business. But I had a hard serve, and mm-hmm. it was the, it was what was working against me in the early days, and I thought that if I developed that love of money, I would somehow sacrifice sacrifice my hard serve. But I've come full circle. I love making money. I love having money and spending money, and I make no apology for any of that. I've paid my dues, but I also love service. I over-deliver. I'm excited about the results that people are getting. I think I have a calling, uh, and I'm on a mission to develop a legacy piece that's bigger than, you know, just teaching somebody how to make a few bucks. I want to change culture. I think that all of that is so tied up in your story too, you know, just hearing and learning more about your story and even what you've shared with us today. Of course. I mean, you, until you were 40, no one had ever told you you were intelligent, right? Having someone hold up a mirror in front of you and saying, gee, Debbie, you're smart. You know, Debbie, you're, you, you're highly intelligent. You're a great learner. Um, and then moving on to when you did that class with, the uh, gentleman teaching the class for the disabled people how to start a business. And he's saying to you, if I knew what you knew, I'd be a millionaire. You know, again, people showing up and, and, and telling you ways to navigate and giving you that support, coaching you, giving you advice. Um, the banker who was helping you navigate your own bankruptcy, but then helping you do that in a way that would create a soft landing, um, allow you to keep your house, things of that nature. Um, had that, had you not had those experiences, had you not come from a place when you did not have that to then suddenly having people in your life show up to provide that for you, I don't know that you would have the passion that you have around going and being the crab in the bucket that actually goes back and gets the other crabs, you know, um, because you've experienced what it's like when no, the crab doesn't come back. And you've experienced what it's like when the crab says, hey, let me show you how to do this. Get out of the bucket. I love that analogy of the crabs in the bucket. And you have shared that with me before, but I don't know, the way you shared it today just resonated different. And um, I can just see so many crumbs of your own story that, of course, leads you to be that person, which is why you're fully living on purpose. You're doing the work that you're here to do. Um, and I want to get into this piece because you said the three things that you're, that you really are teaching now, which is, you know, mindset, a lot of that being money mindset, uh, the power of a really good network. You've always been a people person, always been good at networking and kind of collecting people in your life, teaching that to other people now, and also communication, just being a really good communicator. Why do you think the three of those are so important and how do they interconnect with each other? Because I know that's a pretty big foundation of the business that you have and also what you teach other people. Yeah. So, um, you know, I did a lot of, I did a lot of research to kind of suss out those points because most business classes start with let's design a business plan. Assuming, of, of course, that you have the internal resources to be able to give that plan legs. And what I know is that for people who go to any kind of business programming, and we have a lot of it here, the percentage of people that actually do any good with it are very slim. One of the benefits of leaving my rural home and moving to major centers, because most of the places I served in the military were major centers, two things happened. I got, you know, acquainted with a diverse group of people. I met women who were already empowered. I came from a background of people where women didn't work. And um, honestly, I was, um, I inherited an ability to be a doormat. But I met women who were so empowered. And, you know, when I was a young mechanic, one of the, this is an example of, of who I was. I would, you know, when I'd have a little bit of free time, I'd be in the kitchen cleaning, cleaning up the kitchen, you know, the coffee room cleaning up the mugs and stuff, because you can imagine it was always chaotic people coming, going lots of dirty dishes. And I was the only woman. So, you know, I thought that was my job, right? Like that's women's work kind of thing. And this woman came in one day and she said, what are you doing? 
and she said, what the fuck are you doing? And I said, well, you know, you can't drink out of these cups. And she said, that's not your work. You're a mechanic. Get back on the floor. That was it. I left that sink of dirty dishes. I never, ever washed another dish. Oh, I'm a I terrible I love domestic that. woman. I think that, that is, was it. I think that is such an important um, piece as we, um, I know one of the things you and I are both really passionate about is, you know, empowering women, right? And like really getting women to step up and you, you started to have some examples. And as you got into those bigger cities, seeing women already owning their seat at the table, conquering that, owning their power, being in a place of power by being empowered themselves. And um, just that example of, you know, that woman coming in going like, what are you doing? You know, you might be a woman, but that doesn't mean you have to be the the maid or yeah. the house cleaner or, you know, the wife role here. And I think that women have to sometimes set aside these gender roles in order to go out and have, have those big dreams, um, accomplish these big goals that they have. It can't be defined by what culture or gender says we're capable of. And, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, I love that, that, you know, you never washed another dirty dish again. I mean, it, because it wasn't your job. If, if they dirtied the dish, they needed to wash it. You know, why was that your job? Just because you're, you are a woman. And um, I think those are the kinds of things we have to look at as women to really examine in our own life. Where are we doing that? And where are we, where are we still kind of playing to those gender roles. And this is not, this is a big topic. We could record a whole nother podcast episode on this one, but you know, right. Like it's a, it's a, it's a big piece of it. But I think going back to your own story, I think I can see how this led so much more to your own success as well by starting to have examples of that, seeing other women doing these things and you stepping more into your own power too because you are an empowered woman, you know, like you didn't go through all of these experiences, all the many things that we've talked about today and, you know, huge layers to your story for it to be so that you could just be a crab in the bucket that doesn't get out. It's not, that's just not the point of it all. And I think Mm -hmm. using your voice and, and showing up the way that you do sharing your stories and being the person that turns around and reaches out the hand and says, let me show you the way I'll be more than happy to show you the way while also being okay with commanding a pay or or a price for your, you know, like you're not afraid to like get the money. You're not, I know this about you. Like you have done that mindset work. You've done the money work where you understand that you deserve to be compensated for your work in the world. And you do not diminish your light by by discounting your services or doing things for free because someone, you know, you'll you'll be more than happy to like help somebody when they need help, but your services, you stand really strong in that stance of running a business. And business is meant to be profitable. Mm-hmm. And I it's not like I don't want to give anyone the impression that it was a one and done. Like that day when I did the cups, didn't do it anymore, but I had to fight against this as oh, yeah. Bob Proctor says, the paradigm. It was like, I wanted to wash those dishes. I started washing my own dish, you know, I wanted to wash the dishes, but I, I just couldn't do it and be, and have the respect that I wanted. So it wasn't one and done. When I got into the, to, um, I had been in service with the military. You don't negotiate anything about your pay there. It's set. You're at yeah. a certain rank. Everybody gets paid the same thing. And then I get out into the world and I have to charge for my own services. I struggled with that, right? I, I really did struggle well, with that. Well, you said earlier, was, you didn't even know how to do sales. You couldn't even make yeah. a sale back in those days, you know? Yeah, and to, and way undercharging. So it wasn't like, yes, I was an empowered woman, but I didn't understand value. I didn't understand that exchange of value. And once I got that, once I got that... Um, you know, if you pay me a large amount of money, I'm going to open the door for a lot of money for you. So I'm not, it's not the hour that we spend together. You know, it's, it's what I'm going to deliver with that. So I started to get, you know, that internally, but I'm still fighting this. Remember where I came from and the whole crabs in a bucket is those people that have money have been getting rich on the backs of the poor forever and they're not good people. So I certainly didn't want to become one of those people. 
So there was all of that going on at the same time. But I mean, I had to pay the bills. So I had to get over myself, get over all of that, you know, get comfortable with stepping up and saying, this is what I'm charging. And, um, you know, and along the way, I've developed a, a ton of other skills that go along with that. It's really quite magical. Yeah. Well, I know that um, one of the things, there's a lot of things that you talk about with your audience, but, you know, you are very big into the money mindset and law of attraction uh, and really teaching what has been given to you. You went on your own journey to learn this. You studied, like you mentioned, Bob Proctor being one of the people that has been a mentor of yours. Um, you know, what are, what are you excited about for the future? I know you're writing a book, you've published other books, you've got a lot of things that you're working on. As I just mentioned at the beginning of the show, you and I are working together as you're developing a new signature talk and keynote speech that you will go out and deliver to people. Um, you're out doing a lot of things and, and sharing your, your genius with a lot of people in a lot of different ways. What are some of the things that you're excited about that are on the horizon for you? Yeah, so um, m most of what I do is, I, I mean, I absolutely love do doing, but it isn't my seagull, right? It's, it, you know, these are things I know that I can do. But the big goal that, you know, I spend most of my time visualizing about and the one that you don't tell everybody about, but I'm comfortable telling everybody about it now because I'm, I'm, it's going to happen, right? I, I know it's going to happen. I just don't know the logistics of it yet. But um I want to speak to um, whoever does regional economic development and uh, tell them what I've learned from my lived experience. When I got at university, I was reading studies in women's studies about women in untraditional roles, and they were talking about tradeswomen. So these were professors at university who had never owned a toolbox in their life, and they had gone somewhere and studied a woman in the army, you know, they had a study on a woman in the army who was a tradeswoman. And I'm reading this and I said, you guys don't know shit about women in the army, all of this stuff here. That was like that. That was skimming the talk. You should have seen what it was like for us on day one, showing up in a place where they hated us. You know, they hated us. I was part of a class action lawsuit for that first cohort of women. You know, it was awful. And, and at university, I started to talk about this, what you bring what you bring to the knowledge industry when you have um, applied learning, when you have, when you were there, when you weren't reading the book, you were showing up at work every day with those men and you were there and you were there when the wives hated you because you worked with their men and you were trying to progress through this. So anyway, uh, what I, the piece that I'm passionate about is the knowledge that comes when you educate an oppressed person which I, I claim that. When you give them the ability to be able to analyze their own lives, not from, I could do a PhD, I, I'm brilliant. I can synthesize that information and, and incorporate it into my own life. I don't want to. But I do want to tell people what I've learned from a public policy perspective. You're wasting your money in all the wrong places. You don't know how to empower people. You do not know how to empower people because you've never been at that level. So my bigger goal, like what, where's Debbie? And I'm 59 now. Where's Debbie at 70? I'm actually being invited into uh, rooms where people are making policy about where to commit money in underdeveloped countries and, and places where people are economically depressed, which brings to me to a, a little plug for you, you know, and I can gush forever about you. What you've allowed me to do is make sense of my story. Mm. I knew what I was on to. I was just too close to the action. And what I needed to do was like get the story out and see what, like that guy, right? See what they see. Mm -hmm. I knew I was on something. I've been talking about this. I get invited into universities to talk about this. I'm passionate about this, this piece, this nugget. If it's just finances, I'm going to be fine. I, I am fine. I want people to know this stuff and they're not getting it for free. I mean, I have worked my ass off and spent a lot of money, probably close to $180,000 educating myself over the past 20 years. And I have a piece of intellectual property that it could revolutionize the way that they provide supports for people who have never had role models. So this is getting back to what I teach. Strategically leveraged network. If you want to get out of that bucket, you need somebody to give you a hand. So I have people, friends of my, you know, I have like my 
private board of directors. Uh, one guy, his dad was, um, you know, a pediatric cardiologist. That's a different uh, starting position than my starting position. And we get together and we share stuff. Because I come from my background, I have insight. He needs to sell to people from my background. Absolutely. I have insight about my people that allows him to sell to my people. Right? I know. So, uh, you know, there's this sharing of information. So that's where the networking piece comes in. How do I get to sit at the table with all of these people? Well, I'll show you. Because if you're not going to open your heart and your mind to those people, they have access to resources. You're not going to get those resources unless you can show up like a cotton ball, not a battering ram, cotton ball. Yeah. So that's, where, that's where I'm going. I love that. And you mentioned it earlier, like creating that legacy piece, which that's what you're creating. And I love that vision. I love seeing and hearing what you are wanting to create in the next 10 years. And, you know, knowing you the way I do now, I don't think it'll take you 10 years. You'll probably have that done by by next year. You'll already be making and influencing policy in a positive way. Um, You know, there was something you said earlier about someone, uh, something about your education, someone teaching you something. And I, I would dare say that what, you know, what you didn't have for the first time was an advocate. And you mm-hmm. finally had people that advocated for you. And, um, you know, you didn't have anyone, well, you then did have someone advocating for you. So what I see you stepping into and what you already have stepped into is being an advocate for other people, that whole crabs in the bucket mentality perfectly mm-hmm. explains that. But now doing that at such a level that you would inform and influence policy at the national level that would greatly impact the people that you desire to reach, which Mm -hmm. is the people that were just like you, the underserved, the oppressed, the poor, the uneducated, you know, people that didn't have a way out um, and that's, that's a massive vision, and I love every bit of it for you. I love it. This is why um, I love talking to you, Debbie, because I always get so inspired also from you, you know, uh, just thinking I about it. I love it. That makes me feel good. But just to bring it down to practical skills for a minute, that kind of a vision, you know, I want to speak at the United Nations. I, I want to speak to policy development across the world, like about what I've learned uh, the hard way, with a rubber hits the road. It's a big vision. And there is, uh, there used to be a little voice that would come up and say, my God, who do you think you are? (laughs) And I can hear people saying that. But I think this is who I am. This is who I am. And it it doesn't scare me. So uh, there isn't a woman that I've coached or or a man that hasn't set a big goal, say like 10 times your revenue. And that's pretty scary. And they don't have that thing come up. Who do you think you are? Mm -hmm. The only distinction between somebody who's out there now stuck at 50,000, 20,000 and somebody who's bringing in a half a million is skill, a skill. Who knows what that skill might be? Maybe that skill is I can't push against the resistance. I don't know how to push against the resistance. Maybe it's the skill is everybody around the table at night, they won't listen to my vision because they think I'm nuts. We don't have any money. So it's how do you operate in an environment where there's no resources? That's a skill. Uh, in adult learning, you do uh, knowledge, skills, and attitude. So you're either teaching them piece of knowledge, a skill, manual skill, practical skill, or changing your attitude, fighting against that thing that's inside you. You can do anything. Do anything. Anybody can do anything. Well, I think that, that that's just it. We all battle. Uh, you talk a lot about imposter syndrome, too. Like, we all battle that little nasty voice. And those who actually achieve those goals, create those big visions and go after them are the ones that hear that voice and do it anyway. They yeah. do it anyway. You know, I hear that voice. I, I come up with stuff all the time. And then the very next thing will be like, who do you like? Oh, April, come on. You know, um, I'm, I'm in the middle of that right now with just a program that I'm launching. And I had that thought go through my head the other day. And then I had to like, oh, there you are. Hello, imposter syndrome, you know? And then the very next thing I say to myself is, well, you better watch out because I'm going to show you how I'm going to do it, you know, but that, that takes some practice. And, um, that has 
you know, obviously there's been some people that have held up good mirrors for me along the way that have encouraged me, but I totally agree that, um, anything we think we can do or anything that we dream and part of a vision, it's already really achieved. It's just further on the timeline from where we are. So it's totally doable. You know, um, mm-hmm. if you think about it, you can bring about it. Right. Um, and so, yeah. Uh, that's why I say there's no question that it is a big vision and there's no question though, that you will achieve it. Any, any piece of it that you're desiring and all of it, because you will, you'll set on the path to do it. And sure. You're going to have your times when you have the negative Nelly voice in your head, but because you have done so much work and you understand the mindset piece, you're absolutely going to achieve it. And I am just excited that I'll get to have a front row seat watching you do it. Oh yeah. yeah. You're my new, my new anchor. You're not going anywhere yet. (laughs) Well, I would love to hear, um, you know, as we wrap up this, this interview, uh, thank you so much for sharing so many pieces of your story. It's a, it's a, it's a multi-layered uh, experience that you've been through, like so many things that have happened. And the fact that you are here at 59 years old as a incredibly successful woman and fully empowered, standing in your power and going and doing amazing things in the world is a true example that anyone else out there that might be struggling or juggling um, and feeling this, the failures and the setbacks that, you know, the whammies that keep coming their way your story can be a true shining example of what's possible if they just keep going. And maybe they start to look at finding those mentors, finding people that will be advocates for them, working on their mindset, um, building those powerful networks to, um, which is exactly what you did to build what you have. Um, I would love to hear as we wrap up, just as we talk specifically about storytelling, what is something that you have learned from being in the world of light beamers and doing, you know, working with me and getting to go on this storytelling ride. What is something that you have learned about storytelling that you, that you're, that you now know that maybe you hadn't harnessed before? Um, well, there's certainly the mechanics of it. Like it took me a little while to get my head around a story arc. You know, yeah. how you go from problem to solution. There's that, but even more powerful April. And you demonstrated it just now is that you said, even now I'll have this little voice come up and, uh, you know, call me out when I make my dream too big. Um, we need to be truth tellers mm-hmm. because if we only go out there and show this, uh, you know, if we work on impression management and show people how good everything is, if I don't tell you what my backstory was, you're just going to assume that I've always been living here in this little condo, you know, <laughs> So Ocean I think front condo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I might add. <laughs> but, um, okay, but when we tell our truth in a story, if you just happen to throw a bit of truth in there, I mean that that is powerful. That is powerful stuff. People not only want to hear that, they want to find themselves in your story. And relatability is so important in life. We we when I you know all the places that I went. I found somebody that I could relate to. If I heard somebody say they came from that kind of a background, I was going to trust that person to get me to at least as far as they were. You know, I may not have understood it prior to my education, like what I was doing, but it was at play. Relatability is so important, but we're all out there not wanting to tell about going bankrupt and failing as a, you know, failing as a, somebody who grew up, you know, in the church, failing in a marriage. That was like... God, we don't want to tell this stuff, but people want to hear this stuff because that's where they are. So that's what, that's what I'm learning. The rest of it, the nuances of like trying to rein all this in, it's going to come with your guidance. It's going to come. Well, I adore you to the ends of the earth. I've just so loved getting to know you. I was thrilled to have you on the podcast today. And, um, I know I'm going to get to finally meet you in person later this year when we have our storytelling Yay. symposium in Texas. You're coming down for it. Um, everybody, we're going to link up how to find Debbie, her website. All of that information will be in the show notes. She's at People Can, uh, People Can Biz Business, right? Is that What's your website? It is peoplecanbiz.com. 
people can biz B-I-Z dot com. And we will link that up. Um, follow her. I really enjoy her LinkedIn post. Um, she's very active on LinkedIn and has a lot to say there. So connect with her there as well. She's, of course, a valued member of the Light Beamers community. You can find her inside our community. Debbie, thank you so much for being with me today. And thank you for sharing your story and shining your light. All right, everybody, we will be back next week with another episode of the Inside Story podcast. So happy you were with us today. We'll be back next week and we'll see you then. Have a good one. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to give it a review and share this broadcast out with your friends and family. Now, did listening to this episode make you think more about your own story? Are you wondering which parts of your own story are relevant to share with others? This is the question I get asked more than any other. How do I share my story? Which parts of my story are worth sharing with other people? How can I make my story relatable so that others can benefit from it? I've taken my simple process that I've used for years as a journalist and broken it down into a three-part storytelling formula that will help you discover the key components of your own story and how to share it. It's a free resource I've created to help you become a Light Beamer by sharing your story. Simply go to www.lightbeamers.com and click on the big yellow button on the homepage to download your story formula. I'd love to hear your story too, so be sure to join my free community on Facebook, the Light Beamers community, and share your story with me. I can't wait to learn more about you and the story that's inside of you. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you can get notified when our next broadcast is live. You will want to stay tuned to the stories we are lining up for you next. I promise they are so good. As always, Light Beamers, I'm over here cheering for you. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM, women's voices amplified.